Well, happy Monday, everybody. Thanks for joining. Happy Monday, Chris. Happy, happy Monday, Monday, Brendan. We're all here together. And uh, yesterday, yesterday was Father's Day. And so uh, for the dads who are watching, happy Father's Day to you. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know what? Uh, I always know that this day and Mother's Day are a celebration for some and also a challenge for others. And so, you know, some of you might have lost your dads or maybe had bad relationship with your dads. And so we do want to honor you and we pray that our Heavenly Father um, will just show you kindness and love and grace mm-hmm. and mercy to you. Uh, but we know it's not just a celebration today. Uh, it's also hard. So we, we're praying for all of you today. But uh, for the dads who are watching, uh, happy Father's Day to you. You are important. Uh, you are um, yeah, a big a big part of the family life. And so we thought today we're going to talk about toxic masculinity. Perfect. Excellent. <laughs> um, Nancy Piercy is going to be joining us in a few moments here. And uh, she has a book that comes out next week called um, uh, About Toxic Masculinity, just the war again on, on toxic masculinity and how we can combat it and uh, what it's all about. So I thought it's a perfect op- opportunity to talk about that on a Father's Day Monday. Wait, yeah. wait, that book there, that's not it. This book is not it. I wish no, I had her book. I, I pre-ordered mine, so it's coming Early out. Access. This is her last book, uh, one of her last books called Love Thy Body, which is a fantastic book. She talks about all kinds of things. She talks about euthanasia, abortion, mm. homosexuality, transgenderism, oh. hip, uh, hookup, hookup culture, uh, a lot of stuff. In fact, actually on episode two, when we had all the OG hosts mm. earlier this year, um, this book came up and we talked about some of our mm. uh, books that have been impacting us. I think it was Isaac that mentioned this book. And um, wow. so highly recommend it. Very controversial. And yet uh, you'll we hear from... That. Pardon? We love that. We, we love, love that. <laughs> we love that. It's a fantastic book, but uh, it's a very controversial book with lots of topics that, you know, would be cultural swear words these days. But ironically, when we talked to Nancy Piercy later, um, I know I heard her say in another interview that this new book she has on a toxic masculinity is more controversial. Nice. Which I thought, oh, we nice. need to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to ask three men. Oh, wow. Why are we yeah. toxic? That's but. Right. Uh, <laughs> So basically, we're just hoping to get a free counseling session here <laughs> to make us a little less toxic. But uh, oh, this man. is a huge topic. Uh, you know, a few months back uh, in March was, um, you know, International Women's Day and Women's Month. And I saw McDonald's. I saw, uh, um, you know, they changed their golden arch. They flipped it upside down to make a W for women. And then I was thinking, oh, does that mean like when it flips back, it's like M is for men for the other... 11 months. I don't know if they thought that through. <laughs> they didn't think that was... <laughs> Anyways, uh, lots to talk about. First, though, Chris, how are you? I'm doing good. You're doing great. Awesome. Oh, I thought you were um, going to forget to ask us. Wow. You know what? Oh, I would never, no. man. I feel um, so seen. <laughs> Yeah. Well, he hasn't asked you yet. Oh, yeah. So. so anyways, moving on. Um, <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> spoke too soon. Uh, Brendan, how are you? Fantastic. I'm doing Amazing. Really Praise the Lord. But uh, yesterday was church and yesterday was Father's Day. Hmm. Um, but uh, comment below. What did you learn about at church? Uh, did you talk about fatherhood? You know, a lot of churches sometimes do that. Um, but uh, Chris, what did you guys talk about? Did you, uh, did you go to church yesterday? Sure did. I know you have kids. Sometimes That's kids right. are sick. Yeah. No, <laughs> we, we didn't do the breakfast in bed. You didn't do the breakfast in bed. Pastor no. pillow. Dad gets a tie sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> No, yeah, once church, uh, still in John. Nice. Still in John, yeah. eh? <laughs> I know, right? Months, months later. And months and months. And guys. Just, just, We're going to focus on one word today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jesus yeah. wept. All right. Let's, That's two words. It's <clears throat> okay. too long. That's two weeks. That's <laughs> two weeks. That's too That's long. Two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> this is a two-parter. First, <laughs> let's think about Jesus. <laughs> 
Oh, we could do that. I love expositional preaching. You know, I'm all about it. Brendan, yeah. uh, you uh, you <laughs> went to multiple church services apparently this guess, last. How many did I go to? I'm gonna guess. You know, maybe three. It seems so. Go up. Go up. Keep going. Four. Yeah. There Four. It is. Oh. Four <laughs> services. I was. <laughs> I was at a youth conference all weekend, so I'm running off no sleep right now. Nice. Yeah. Now, when you have no sleep, um, do you get, like, what, what happens to you? I know some people get funnier, some people get delusional, some people just are angry <laughs> some, and want to Some people to go manic. <laughs> <laughs> what, are you, what are you, Brendan? I just, uh, call me old-fashioned, but I get tired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You just want to go to bed? I just want to sleep. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm not super functional. Usually, but, uh, usually when I get super tired, I get like, I start making some really good jokes, mostly inappropriate. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. I get less funny. Oh, I do. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's cool. That's cool. That's cool. That's yeah. Cool. When I sleep, I'm at my funniest, so. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's why <laughs> I'm always so So funny. you have like hilarious dreams? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they inspire me. They stand give me up. Vision. You do stand up? <laughs> God comes to me every, every dream, every night, and he said, these are the jokes you're going to tell tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a little bit uh, just kidding, just demonic. Kidding. Okay, um, but uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I had a church yesterday, and we we're going through Second Corinthians, and um, you know, something that stood out to me, man, I don't have my Bible with me, but uh, you know, Paul talks about um, affliction, and he talks about the eternal weight of glory, and the comparison, and he kind of talks about that in Romans eight as well. You know, our suffering is not worth comparing to uh, the glory that will be revealed to us, or this future glory, and so, uh, but in Corinthians, he's talking about affliction and he's saying you know it actually even though the outside were perishing inside were being renewed day by day uh for this light affliction that we have mm. and uh we kind of focused in on light affliction and our pastor kind of illuminated to us the reality that at this point you know he's been gone through like lashes you know 40 times minus one however many times he had lashes and prison and near-death experiences and shipwreck and just like all this turmoil that he's faced. And then he says, light affliction. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so that, you almost died like many times. <laughs> and the beatings. Yeah. And yeah, the yeah, yeah. Jail. And, he, yeah. and, and then for me, I think of like, you know, these tiny things in comparison to what he's gone through. Mm-hmm. And he calls it light affliction. Mm-hmm. And then he talks about the comparison that like gets on a scale, your affliction and the eternal, exceeding eternal weight of glory. Mm-hmm. And how just there's just no comparison. There's no comparison. There's just no yeah. comparison. And so that was just really eye-opening to me because sometimes I take my afflictions or my hardships or my trials mm-hmm. and I just make a big deal of them. And then I read Paul's journey and how mm-hmm. he makes a very little deal yeah. of his. Yeah. yeah, he just saw it coming. It's like he's expecting it. Yeah. Man, yeah, it's just so beautiful. So that was just really eye-opening for me and really encouraged me. Yeah. Um, but uh, comment below, what did you learn in church uh, yesterday? We really do want to hear from you. So we don't just say comment below for fun. <laughs> Uh, we Andrew, actually, Andrew reads all of your comments, actually. I do. So and I will something respond. really mean If you to respond him. right... Oh, no. Come on, man. Come <laughs> on. Kidding. Stop being mean to men. Okay? Maybe we should... Oh, man. We should get into the topic with uh, Nancy Pierce. Her, her Zoom call is almost ready. But I want to give you a couple little highlights about her, who she is, so you know. Best-selling author gives a strategic guide on her new book. Her new book is called The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. So it's become socially acceptable to express open hostility towards men these days. And uh, she'll mention some of that stuff. There's a lot of quotes and a lot of hashtags that are popular that men should die and why do we need men, all that kind of stuff, which I don't really understand because if we were all gone, I guess there'll be no more babies. So society would just... Yeah, that's their goal. (laughs) Wait, 
Is it? <laughs> probably. That's if you're saying kill all men, it's like you probably want the destruction of society. It's, it's really hard to argue otherwise. <laughs> like all men, especially when the men are saying it. That's yeah, what men, really oh, men yeah, are, that's, men that's are saying it too. Men, yeah, saying yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. men are like, yeah, you know what? They have every right to believe that. It's like, men are terrible. Yeah. And I'm like, you know but, what? But they want to keep living. They say that, but they don't want to commit suicide or any or any or kill anybody. I don't know. It's I don't know. But we want yeah. we want to dive in and kind of look at the theology of it, the history of it, because it doesn't. This didn't just happen this year. Uh, there's a long trail of history that kind of led yeah. up to this moment, and so we're gonna we're gonna dive in. I know Nancy Piercy will have lots of great stuff to tell us. So let's jump into the Zoom call with her. Uh, find out more about this toxic masculinity, what's happening in our culture, how we can avoid it, and um, that's it. Let's do it. Cut to the interview. Brendan, stay awake. <laughs> stay awake. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I know because he's really tired. Yeah. 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 All right. Cut to the interview again. <laughs> again. No, I think I think we That's should just funny. cut to the interview when he said cut to the interview. Okay. Let's okay. just cut to it right now. Okay. You know what? <laughs> Get to the interview. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. That's Keep all of that. That's perfect. <laughs> all right. We have Professor Nancy Piercy with us. Uh, where are you from right now? Where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Houston. I teach at Houston Christian University. Awesome. So, yeah, I'm right, right here. Awesome. Amazing. Thank you so much for tuning in with us. And uh, before we dive into uh, your newest book that comes out next week, which I'm very excited to dive in, very prevalent issues uh, that I'm finding in the church and out of the church, uh, just in culture today. But tell us a little bit about your story, uh, how you came to faith and what you're doing now career and ministry wise. Oh, I love it when people start an interview to ask me for my story. Awesome. <laughs> in a sense, I'm finding that the older I get, the more I appreciate hmm. my conversion, the more I appreciate that God got hold of me. Wow. And so I'm, I've been using it all in all my public lectures now. Like I start with my story. Anyway, um, so I was raised in a Lutheran home, but it was Scandinavian Lutheran. And if any of you have been raised in an ethnic home, you kind of know what that's like, like, you know, all Irish are Catholic, all Scandinavians are Lutheran. And so that tends to be uh, almost an equation of Christianity with their ethnic background. And so in high school, I started asking questions and my parents didn't know what to do. It was like, well, wait a minute, we're Swedish. You know, <laughs> uh, How can you have questions? Um, I, I talked to a Christian college professor and I just asked him point blank, why are you a Christian? He said, works for me. <laughs> That's it. You know, college professor. So, and I also had a chance once to talk to a seminary dean, Lutheran seminary dean, and, and all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes, as if it was kind of a psychological phase that I would outgrow. Hmm. And, and so at that point, I began to say, well, maybe Christianity doesn't really have any answers. And I very intentionally walked away from my religious upbringing. And, and embarked on a search for truth. Like, I guess it was, it's up to me, I guess, you know, to figure out what's true, uh, to, to find a philosophy to live by. And so, actually, that's when I began to be interested in philosophy. It mm. wasn't an academic pursuit. I was realizing that if there was no God, there was no meaning to life. There was no purpose to life. There was no foundation for ethics. You know, there's just true for me, true for you. I didn't feel like there was even a basis for knowledge. Like all I have is my puny brain and the vast scope of time and history. But what makes me think I could have some sort of eternal, objective, absolute truth? Ridiculous. 
So I, I became a moral relativist and a skeptic and totally, totally secular in all my thinking. And uh, it was a few years later, um, I, I, I was in Germany. I had lived in Europe when I was a child. And so I'd gone back and I stumbled across the ministry of Francis Schaeffer, which is in Switzerland. And Schaeffer is, of course, best known for having an apologetics ministry. And I, I was blown away. I had no idea Christianity could be defended with good reasons, wow, yeah. good logic, good evidence. Um, I'd never heard any Christians talk like that before. And so it took a year and a half, but eventually I, I decided that Christianity did have uh, a, a better answer than any other religion or philosophy. And so that's why all my books have something to do with apologetics, something to do with showing that the Christian worldview is true. And I teach apologetics at Houston Baptist University. Oh, I should say, we are in the process of changing our name, so we're actually Houston Christian now. Okay. Um, but, but you know, I just want to, I really have a heart to reach out to young people who had the kind of questions that I had mm-hmm. when I was young. Yeah, that's huge. And a lot of young people are asking the same questions and are on these journeys, just like you. How old were you when you finally decided? I was about 20. Okay. Yeah. So, but I had given up my faith halfway through high school. So, you know, there was, there was several years of identifying as an agnostic and, and I had no interest in going back. I mean, I felt like, well, Christianity let me down once, you know, I'm not interested. Mm. And so people asked me, well, why did you go to Labrie, which is a, a Christian ministry, if you weren't a Christian? And the answer is I had uh, some relatives passing through mm. and they were stopping at Labrie just for a weekend. And they said, hey, come down and see us. So I went down to see my family. I didn't go to, to go to a Christian ministry. <laughs> so, amazing, so, amazing. That's how I ended up there. Yeah, and it was it was evident from my questions that I was not a Christian. And so back then it was very um, it was more unstructured. If they had a free bed, they'd say, "Hey, we we have room. You want to stay?" And I thought, well, I've never met Christians like this before. Wow. Oh, and the other thing, of course, this was 1971, so everyone there was hippies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and 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 that too actually was a serious point because th- at that point there were no Christians reaching across the cultural divide, you know, and reaching out to these disaffected young people. And I thought, who are these Christians that mm. they can even talk to hippies, you know? Wow. So it was so impressive. I had just never and a lot of people said because it was a kind of a residential ministry where you came and stayed and you lived with families. So a lot of people said the um the apologetics was persuasive, but it was also persuasive to be in a Christian community and see a quality of love that we had never seen before. Wow. And so I tell my students, the two top apologists of the 20th century were C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer mm. in terms of the sheer number of people who were converted through their work or, or brought through a crisis of faith. And so I say, you know, if you're going to learn apologetics, just start with them. Don't, yeah. don't, read, don't read the lesser figures, you know, read them. You know, why were they so successful? Lewis was teaching, so he had relationships with his students. And Schaefer had young people living in their home. And uh, so I think that was another reason he was so effective. He wasn't just a talking head, you mm-hmm. know, on, who would fly into a conference and speak. You know, you saw him day in and day out. You could see whether his Christianity was authentic or not. And, and it was. Wow. Wow, that's so beautiful. And, and what a good reminder that, you know, yes, the apologetics, yes, having theological conversations is so huge, but also we witness by our love and people seeing the family 
And I think we can transition really well into our conversation today because, you know, the family is kind of breaking apart and there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, narratives uh, in the area of what men should be like, what women should be like, and the family's breaking down. The family is a huge part of our testimony of people seeing the love of God in our families. Um, uh, I want to talk about first the good news. You know, people often accuse evangelical Christian men uh, of being oppressive, patriarchs, uh, prone to abuse, but you make in your book um, surprising claims that they test out as having the lowest level of abuse and divorce. So let's just kind of walk through some of the good news and then we can kind of dive into some of the the bad news that the world is is kind of bringing up and these narratives that are happening. Yeah, it was really easy to find examples for this part of the book in terms of people making evangelical men like the first target. Right? Mm-hmm. Because if you believe in any form of headship in the home, which most conservative Christians do, uh, theologically conservative, um, I, I found so many people, both Christians and non-Christians, saying that if you have any notion of headship, that will that will lead to abuse and tyranny and patriarchy. It will oppress women. It will silence them. They will lose their separate identity and so on. I found so many examples, and I'm sure you've heard it all too. And so it was quite a surprise when I actually dipped into the academic so- sociological literature. There have actually been studies done. Um, partly, partly to answer the question. In other words, when people hear the, the charge that evangelical men are the worst in terms of being overbearing, tyrannical, misogynist <laughs> patriarchs, um, the, the answer to that is, well, where's your evidence? Do you have any evidence for that? If you look into the social sciences, it turns out that evangelical Christian men who attend church regularly, in other words, who actually practice it, test out as the most loving to their wives. They interview the wives separately, which is important. (laughs) (laughs) The wives do test out as saying that they feel loved and appreciated by their husbands. They test out the highest of any group in America. They test, evangelical fathers test out as being the most engaged with their children, both in terms of shared activities like um, sports or church youth group, and as well, and in discipline, like enforcing screen time and mm. enforcing bedtime and so on. And they also do test out as the, having the lowest level of divorce and surprisingly, the lowest level of domestic violence of any group in America. So people, I mean, even Christians don't know this. Uh, most people are just shocked when they hear this. In fact, um, even Christian audiences, I always, I often you see people kind of sit back and go, oh, you know, I never knew that. The main sociologist that I quote, he, I quote a dozen of them, but the one who's done the, the largest study recently wrote an article in the New York Times in which he said, evangelical Christian couples are the happiest couples in America. Hmm. In fact, hey, in my notes, I have it right here. In the New York Times, he says, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America, remember that the idea is that it's oppressive to women. So they, they test the wives in particular. You know, are you, are you happy in this marriage? It turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regular, regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. He got that in the New York Times. <laughs> wow. Which is pretty surprising. 
Wow. The happiest wives in America are the wives of religious conservatives who hold conservative gender values. Nobody knows this. Wow. I mean, this, this was this was kind of the, the final trigger that made me decide to write this book. I said, this this material is as sort of hidden away in the academic sociological literature. We don't know it. We we need to get the good news out and encourage Christian men uh, that they are in fact doing much better than the rest of the culture. Wow. And so where where is this false news coming from? Yeah. So when I talk to people, I always say, <laughs> "Haven't we all heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as secular people?" Yeah. And everyone, yeah, every. <laughs> Everyone always I've heard says, that. yes, I've, I've heard, heard that. that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I've heard that. I don't know where I've heard that. I've heard that. <laughs> well, I, I read one a couple couple articles that said it's one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. So that's that's why we've all heard it. Wow. But so that what <clears throat> what happened is the sociologists went back to the data and they separated out the really committed Christian men who attend church regularly, you know, and, and really live it out from the nominal Christian men. Mm. So nominal Christian men are people who don't really attend church, you know, rarely, if at all, and whose, it turns out, their ideas of masculinity are more absorbed from the secular world. Mm. In other words, they might hang around the fringes of the Christian world enough to hear concepts like headship and submission, but they don't get the biblical meaning of those terms. Instead, they insert secular meaning into those terms. And these men, nominal Christian men are less loving to their wives. Their wives report lower lower levels of happiness. They are less engaged with their kids. They have the highest level of divorce, even mm. higher than secular couples. Wow. And then the real stunner, they have the highest level of domestic violence of any group in America. Wow. Higher than secular men. Wow. So this is the this is why our statistics get messed up, <laughs> because if you put those two, if you just say evangelical and you put these two groups together, you're going to get a misleading statistic. And let me let me give you a quote, another quote. Let me see if I have it handy. This was also from that same sociologist. His name is Brad Wilcox. He's at UVA, University of Virginia, and he's considered um, perhaps the top marriage sociologist in America. And he's quoted as saying. Direct quote, the most violent husbands in America are nominal evangelical Protestants who attend church infrequently or not at all. So this is why the statistics are so misleading. And it also tells churches in a sense what their task is. They're doing a good job with men who attend regularly. But there's a lot of men who hang out on the fringes and they are at actually testing out as worse than secular men. Wow. And I think because they do identify as Christian, as evangelical, and they they kind of are in the cultural orbit of the church, I think the church needs to get educated on who these men are and how to reach out to them more effectively. Wow. That's a shocking statistic, actually. But I guess it makes sense. Now, if you're just kind of throwing everyone in that one group, that's going to balance out to make it look like, you know, divorce is the same in and out. But that's not true. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, you have. It's very important to separate them up yeah. because when you've got when you've got uh, church attending evangelical men testing out as higher than secular men, but nominal Christian men testing out as lower than secular men on divorce and abuse. 
again, I think the most important thing is to ask, well, where are these where are these nominal men coming from? And and how many, well, how many are there? I read one study that said that it's about the same size. You know, you and I probably hang out, hang out mostly with men who are pretty committed to their faith. Um, and so I thought the nominals were kind of a small group. <laughs> no, mm. no. Uh, at least one study I read, it's about the same size. That means you have a 50-50 chance. When you meet an evangelical or somebody who identifies as evangelical, you have a 50-50 chance wow. that they're going to be really committed or they're going to be nominal. Wow. And it, so it it's, it is a large group. That's a really large group. Yeah, it's bigger than I thought. Um, so we talk about, you know, you know, the secular worldview of being a man and masculinity, but you're talking about there's also a biblical perspective. Can you give us just a little insight of what the biblical perspective of manhood and what you research you found as you were working on this book? Yeah, I do think we need to start by saying what's good about men. In fact, the book starts with, can I read some of these? Please, please. (laughs) You know, uh, even respected um, secular outlets like the Washington Post. Washington Post, you know, very mainstream, ran an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? Really? <laughs> Why can't we hate men? Uh, Huffington Post, where you might expect it more, <laughs> tweeted, kill all men. What? It's become kind of a, hash, ha- a hashtag. It's a hashtag, kill all men. She said, my New Year's resolution is to kill all men. Oh, my goodness. You can buy T-shirts that say, so many men, so little ammunition. Wow. Books have appeared with uh, titles like, I hate men, no good men, a men necessary. But what really surprised me is that even men are starting to say this. I have a handful of quotes from men saying things like, women have every right to hate men. you know, Or an author of a book, and he wrote, saying healthy masculinity is like saying healthy cancer. Wow. And I don't know if you saw this, but the director of the movie Avatar. Oh, I did see this. That was so ridiculous. Yeah, like he's talking about testosterone as just a toxin and James Cameron, who also directed Titanic. Um, And, uh, you know, like where where is this coming from? Well, let me give you one one more example and then I'll tell you what's coming. So I told my class I was writing a book on masculinity, and one of the male students shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. Wow. There's a survey that came out for um, International Women's Day a few months ago. 55% of men agree with a statement, quote, society has gone so far in promoting women's rights that is now discriminating against men. 55%. So whether you agree or not, that's a lot of men who now feel that the male bashing has gone too far. So where does this come from? That was that was the first question I, I started working on this book. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to know where did it come from? Because, you know, you can't really effectively oppose, oppose something unless you know where it came from and how it developed. Totally. And and to my surprise, it it's, has a much longer history than most of us realize. You really have to go back to the Industrial Revolution. Because before the Industrial Revolution, well, it wasn't the father's job. It was the family industry. And husband and wife are working side by side. And fathers are with their children all day long, teaching them the work skills. And so men were working with people they loved and had a moral bond with. And so the model for masculinity at that time really stressed the caretaking role, you know, being responsible for your family and and, and having to be gentle, you know, because you're dealing with women and children um, and you need to be gentle in your treatment of them. 
the Puritans talked about duty to God and man, you know, and duty was defined back then as self-sacrifice. Mm. In other words, we all look out for our own interest. You, know, you look out what's good for you. I look out for what's good for me. But the person in authority was tasked with looking out for the common good, the good of the whole. And the favorite word back in the colonial era was that a man should be disinterested, which meant not pursuing his own interests, but pursuing the interest of the whole, the family, you know, the church, the village, the community. They they talk, talked about them as fathers of the community, as well as being fathers of their family. So it was a very different model of masculinity. And of course, it was nice to start with early America in my book because most people were Christians at that time. Mm. So it also gives you sort of a starting point in explaining what is a, a Christian man. Oh, and of course, I, I kind of skipped your earlier question. Um, what is the biblical view? Well, you have to start with sheer biology, right? God created male and female, and men are stronger, faster, um, more because of testosterone. They do tend to be more assertive. And we have to affirm these as good qualities. You know, God gave them to men. And that sounds like a cult, that sounds like a cultural swear word that you're saying there, though. You can't say that. (laughs) Well, just like that they're stronger, faster. No one talks like that anymore. No, in fact, there are feminists who say, oh, it's not true. If women would just work out more, they'd be just as strong. I'm sorry. No. (laughs) Yeah. I I feel like if I said it, I would be, oh, we we hate you. You're a man. You're wrong. But you're saying as well, no. You've got to start with biology. I mean, these are facts. Yeah. And men do has, have more testosterone and women have more estrogen. And it does affect them all across the board, physically and emotionally. The first ever cross-cultural study of concepts of masculinity was done several years ago. Not of men, but of concepts of masculinity. What did they hold up as a masculine ideal? And it was done by an anthropologist who discovered that in every culture, men are expected to do what he called the three P's, provide, protect, and procreate, meaning raise a family. Provide, protect, procreate. Hmm. It's universal. He found it in every culture, in spite of all the other differences that may be between cultures. And the reason for that, of course, is that is that women have babies. We're talking biology here, right? <laughs> women have babies, which means that they're more tied down they have to be close to the home, raising young children. In pre-industrial eras, you know, women were pregnant frequently and and or nursing and or carrying a baby on the back and usually all three at once. <laughs> so they're not the ones out there hunting. Yeah. You know, they're not yeah. able to run fast. <laughs> yeah. uh, they often have a responsibility for agriculture, but, but men are not as tied down by young children. And so in every culture, they usually have they usually hunting and warfare are the two that are universally masculine thing, uh, task and even if even if the culture differs on other things so i think that we have to you know affirm the biological differences is good i mean clearly men and women are still more alike than they are different if you put you know masculine masculine traits and feminine traits like psychological traits in a bell curve right they they overlap very closely mm-hmm. And so you don't want to make too much out of the differences because we overlap closely. But we've gotten to the point where we almost want to deny biology. (laughs) And I think we have to say, no, God made us with our biology. And we need to start at a very basic level, at least affirming biology is good. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I was talking about where the concept of toxic masculinity came from. So it's nice to have a comparison, you know, a contrast. In the colonial era, men worked with their wives and children, and the model, you know, uh, was very much a caretaking model. After the Industrial Revolution, uh, you know, the, the big factories and offices took work out of the home. Well, men had no choice but to follow their work out of the home into offices and factories. And instead of working with people they loved and had a moral bond with, they now worked in competition with other men. Mm. The, the secular script for men began to change because it seemed like in that competitive industrial um, environment that men had to be more self-assertive, you know, look out for number one, be aggressive, be egocentric. Uh, you're in competition with other men, you know, jostling for place in the workplace. And you see the language start to change. Mm. And not that people liked it. Most of the language was negative. Like, we don't like our, that our men are changing. You know, that they're, they're becoming much more individualistic and egocentric and aggressive. So you see a lot of protest at the beginning. And secularization was also happening, right? Society was becoming more secular. Because as this huge public realm started to develop, factories and offices and banks and academia, you know, all these large public institutions, people began to say, well, they should be value free. They should run by scientific principles alone. And, you know, don't bring your private values into the public realm. Haven't we haven't we heard that? Yeah. And that's when that started. Mm. People began to say, leave your, you know, your religious faith, leave your personal values behind. Well, in that case, what what you do with values? I mean, people didn't want to lose values. Things like altruism and and sacrifice and love and uh, and and religious religious devotion. So where were they cultivated? Well, they were cultivated in the home, in the private realm. And who would cultivate them? Women would, because they were still in the home. Hmm. And so this is where you start to get a split between men being secularized by a more secular education, working in an environment that was said to be value free. Men begin to develop a more secular, amoral mindset, whereas women were, for the first time, said to be morally superior. And so this sort of tension between men and women began to develop, where it was expected that women then were supposed to set the moral tone. This is a double standard, Hmm. right? I mean, we all, I I talk to my students and I ask them, when you date, when you're with guys, Is the double standard still there? Like the woman's supposed to be the one who draws the line in terms of your sexual relationship? You know, how far do you go and so on? And my students say, oh, yes, definitely. Mm. There's still a double standard. So, But this is when it started because until then, you have to realize women were not seen as morally superior up until this time. Ever since the ancient Greeks, it was thought that men were more rational and that insight into right and wrong was a rational insight. And therefore, men would be more moral, hmm. and women were morally weaker, you know, according to ancient thought. Um, in fact, the word virtue was used of men. Hmm. Do you know what the the root of virtue is? The, 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 there's a Latin there's a Latin root to the word virtue. It's V I R. You know what V I R is in Latin? No. It's man. <laughs> it's man. Wow. So virtue meant manly strength and honor. Wow. <laughs> That's what it meant. 
And so it was huge. It was huge when in the 19th century, for the first time, women were said to be morally superior and women were said to be the moral guardians of society. In a sense, this set up the tension between men and women that we see even today, where it is expected that boys will be boys. You know, it is, is it expected to, to be a real man, and that it's women who who uh, who call them out. I mean, what, what is the feminist movement but calling men out? Me too, right? Mm. It's all about, you know, we're the virtuous ones, and we have to call you out. You know, we have to call you out for your uh, lack of virtue, your 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 oppressive ways. Yeah, now we have an overview of how this all started. Like, it's not like it yeah. just happened overnight or the last couple of years. It's actually been a long journey of where we land today. But you mentioned just briefly about uh, the secular script that men were now starting to read and engage with. But in your book, you talk about there's two competing scripts uh, for masculinity. You want to walk through what those two scripts are that men are being, uh, you know, shown in, in life? Yeah, this is um, this is really helpful because it disarms a lot of critics. Um, when, when people heard I was writing a book on masculinity, their first question was always, which side is she on? You know, <laughs> you know, is this going to be a male bashing feminist book? Or is this going to be sort of the men's rights, you know, yay raw men kind of book? And I, I don't think we need, need to get trapped into that. So right at the beginning, I put this study. This was done by a sociologist, uh, the, the two cons- competing scripts for men. And here's what he did. He's gone all around the world. And again, multiple cultures. So he asks the, he, he talks to young men um, and he asks them two questions. His first question is, what does it mean to be a, a good man? You know, if you go to a funeral and the eulogy says he was a good man, mm. what does that mean? Well, men have no problem answering that. They said the honor, integrity, sacrifice, protect, provide, look out for the little guy. I thought that was cute. Look out for the little guy, be generous, give to others. And and this sociologist says, well, where'd you learn that? And they always say, uh, <laughs> it's in the air we breathe. It's everywhere. Mm. And if they're in a Western culture, they'll say it's in our Judeo-Christian heritage. And then he asks another question and he says, man up, be a real man. What does that mean? He hmm. actually is more crude. He says, man the F up. You know, so he's <laughs> you know, really trying to, he's trying to capture their sense of what does it mean to be a real man? Yeah. And the young man always say, oh, no, no, no. That's completely different. That means um, be tough, play through pain, um, never give up. And the last two were get rich, get laid. <laughs> um, that's a quote. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so this sociologist said, ah, look at this universally men know hmm. what a good man is. As we would say, they are made in God's image and they do sense what it means to have a God-centered masculinity. Um, they really know that. But then they feel pressure from the culture to be a real man, quote unquote, in terms of being tough and stoic and uncaring and competitive and so on. So... That was that's very helpful because then through the rest of the book, I could talk about you know yes we want to defend the good man, um, and we all know what that means. Mm-hmm. But now let's ask where did the idea the the script for the real man come from? Where did that come from? And what what does that look like? And how is you know how can we critique that and help help men? Basically, I, one thing I say is 
the real debate is not between men and women. <laughs> it's within men's own head hmm. between these two competing scripts. Interesting. You know, which one are they going to go with? Yeah. Wow, I feel like I'm getting like a free counseling session right now. So uh, <laughs> this is so great. So would you say on the um, that other script about, you know, competitive and, you know, warrior and all that kind of stuff, the manly stuff, would some of those still be a biblical, you know, perspective of a man, but just twisted? Yeah, yeah. That's why I started out with biology, because I, I think we do have to acknowledge that because of testosterone, men are stronger, faster more aggressive and so on. And and that we need to um, affirm. So even in the colonial era where the, the caretaking aspect of manhood was, was sort of front and center, mm-hmm. they were still making their way in a wilderness, right? They still had to have strength, courage, resilience, you know, because they were out there creating, uh, you know, creating farms. There was always new businesses to create. You know, they had to create a government. There was... They were creating a civilization in a wilderness. So yes, all of those more t- traditional masculine qualities were also affirmed, mm-hmm. but it was not seen in terms of personal advancement, mm. you know, individual success. Right. It was always you were doing this for your family and your community. So that was the difference. Do you know in the colonial era, they literally thought ambition was a bad word. Because they looked at scripture and in Galatians, in several passages, uh, the scripture says the selfish ambition, selfish ambition as a bad thing. I found about four places in the New Testament when I was writing the book. Wow, it, it's, it is there several times, selfish ambition. Well, the colonials, the early Americans took that very seriously. They thought selfish ambition was definitely a vice. And so, again, after the Industrial Revolution, that all changed. And suddenly it was good for a man to be ambitious, you know, push yourself as far forward as you can above everybody else, get to the top of the heap. So that was definitely a change. Hmm. Some of those qualities are good. In a a crisis, you you want people who can stay strong and not collapse. Yeah. (laughs) But that's not meant, that's meant to be for a crisis. It's not meant to be a way of life. So you Uh, want those strengths, but then you want it balanced, you know, the the tough guy balanced by the tenderness, you know, or the courage back balanced with the caring i totally. think men have a hard time they, they got they've got a lot of qualities they have to balance yeah that's really hard to lean towards one or the other i i keep thinking of like king david where you know he's playing his instruments and he's worshiping the lord next thing you know he's like killing a lion with his bare hands i'm like that seems pretty pretty cool <laughs> it's a good yeah, balance he's I, not I killing king- every lion but you know like when the crisis comes like you said you know he man's up He's one of my favorite examples, too. And he also had that very, very deep friendship with Jonathan, mm-hmm. you know, male friendships. Yeah. You know, that today it's hard for men to have friendships because there's always a suspicion that there's some homoerotic dimension to it. And men don't tend to have the deep friendships. So I, I like that, too. You know, when it says your love is greater than love of women, some people, you know, some people yeah. say, oh, well, see, he, he was a homosexual. No, what he meant was the only love of women that he knew was his harem. You're not going to get intimacy with 200 women. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, he didn't have experience of a close, intimate, warm, one-on-one relationship with a woman because he had a harem. Yeah. And so having the relationship with a man that was actually a real friendship was was much better than anything he'd experienced with women. That's so that's a good point. Today, male... Today, male friendships, I think, I think is a challenge. It is an area that men need to uh, really focus on and, and try to develop. 
Yeah, they're not. We're not good at it. We're not good at it. I will admit it. Uh, but it is well, really important. Well, the real man script yeah. does not encourage it. Right. You know, it doesn't encourage you to be, uh, you know, open with your whole life. You know, to be open today, you have to go to a AA, <laughs> Alcoholics <laughs> Anonymous. Yeah. Anonymous. You know, we celebrate recovery. You have yeah. to go to a special group where they focus on yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't get it in normal life. That's so true. That's so true. Um, you know, I want to uh, ask another question here. Um, you know, you mentioned, I, I think I heard you mention in another interview, you know, you have this book that came out a while ago, Love Thy Body, which is a fantastic book, and I highly recommend it. You talk a lot about a lot of things that, again, would be very, um, you know, cultural swear words these days. Um, but you mentioned, I think, somewhere that this latest book on toxic masculinity is even more controversial. Yes. You said that, yeah. right? Yeah, I did. Which was, which was very shocking to me because, I mean, in today's world, this is pretty controversial talking about, you know, you know, homosexuality, transgenderism, hookup culture, all that kind of stuff. Why would you say this new book coming out next week is more controversial? Perhaps what I mean is in the, in the Christian world. In yeah. other words, among conservative, theologically conservative Christians, um, it turned out that transgenderism and homosexuality were not as sharp buzzwords. I mean, I have been protesting. I haven't protested a few times. I, <laughs> I can imagine. A, I was protested at a Christian college in Portland. Hmm. As soon as I say in Portland, people go, oh, yeah. It makes sense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it turns out in the Christian world, um, I had to rewrite chapter one multiple times because so I have a lot of young women students who all lean feminist and I couldn't say anything good about men without wow. them saying, well, women are that too. If I said, if I said something about men's strength, well, women are strong too. Like, okay. Yeah, they do. They are. <laughs> I happen to be talking about men, men right now. I'm not putting women down. Oh man. They would get triggered so quickly and so easily. It seems like every time but you would men- encourage a man, it seems like you're discouraging a woman is how they would see it. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, yeah, so so I was I was a bit taken aback by uh, how much they they would get triggered and angry, but on the other hand, the men would um, also get very defensive because, like you you said at the beginning, you know they feel beaten down, and um, and for example, uh, one of my graduate students told her husband about the book, and his first question was, you know, well, whose whose side is she on, and. You know, it's, it's, he just assumed it was going to be a male bashing book. He just assumed it um, and said, oh, I hear that at work all the time. You know, I sexual harassment to seminars, you know, all treat us like we're sexual predators. And then he said, and why is a woman writing a book on masculinity anyway? <laughs> and, and, and another grad student told, uh, told his father and had the same response. You know, whose side is she on? Why is she writing a book? I have a friend who I quoted in the book because he said something really good. And I thought, well, maybe he'd like to be one of my expert reviewers. Well, he was a lot more progressive than I realized. Oh, boy. <laughs> he couldn't. He he tore every other sentence in the chapter one. He tore apart. Um, uh, and I, well, it was good. I got to see what a really progressive Christian would do. <laughs> wow. But he was triggered on the, more the feminist side, right? And he was a man. At any rate, yeah, in the Christian world, my the most the hardest thing for me to do was get the readers in. Once they got past chapter one and got into the actual content, it was oh this is really interesting. <laughs> oh I didn't know that. Hmm. 
but you know you have to have a first chapter <laughs> to sort of introduce your themes and i had to rewrite it and rewrite it to try to tell everyone look look i'm actually not taking sides i said as christians you know we're in the world but not of it can't we rise above our cultural controversies and look at this objectively that's what i'm trying to do let's look objectively at the situation facing men today and where the notion of toxic masculinity came from and you know the best way to respond and, and so you know i had to sort of say here's the male bashing some of the quotes i mentioned earlier and then of course i had to also balance that by the me too movement the church too movement and all the ways in which um men have been behaving worse worse than most of us thought i mean I think the Me Too movement was shocking for many people because they had no idea some of these wealthy, rich, entitled men, you know, were engaging in this the kind of sexual um, mis misbehavior that they're engaging in. I don't think most of us knew that, so it was kind of shocking. So you have to, you you kind of have to say yes, men men are behaving worse, and that is a problem. Now let me tell you why. Mm. You know, let me tell you where the secular script came from and how it developed, uh, so that we can be more uh, intelligent about tra tracing it and uh, tracing the cause and that way we can better respond to it yeah that's huge and, and i mean we identify the problem we identify the history we see that even within the church which is really shocking that the church would be so upset about this and it's obviously because they're engaging in culture and what the world is saying and that's distracting them you know I even have a friend who posted on Facebook and she was just kind of saying, you know, about International Women's Day or whatever it was. And she's like, oh, boys, just settle down. The rest of the year is yours. And I'm like, what? Like, where does that like, what are you saying? <laughs> when I said I was going to talk about concepts of masculinity in this book, I also got people saying, well, all history is about men. Yeah, <laughs> you know, because it's true. If, if it's history that's mostly about battles and political figures, yeah, a lot of history is about men. But when I tried to find books on the concept of masculinity, almost nothing. Wow. You know, because of feminism, there's, you know, <laughs> libraries full of books on women and the history of women and the history of concepts of, mas of femininity. But I think I found like two or three really on con the, what does it mean to be masculine what's the how have concepts of masculinity changed you know what does it mean to be a man um and there were some more isolated ones like history of fatherhood um so there were, and th those were helpful but there's almost nothing there were two major books that i found on the history of masculinity fascinating okay so we we see the history we see where it came from we see this cultural moment we're in we see the problem uh what are some solutions what are some ways that we can uh, some takeaways for us to fight against the, you know, the problem. Yeah. So earlier we talked to how women for the first time in ever in history were seen as morally superior. And in a sense, given the task of taming men, <laughs> um, keeping it, holding them in check. And, and this really was expressed a lot in the 19th century. In the 19th century, not only were men, you know, working away from home now, um, and not interacting all day with people that they loved. But uh, young men were coming in from the countryside to find work. And they were especially at risk because they were away from normal chains of accountability, you know, away from their family, church, village, and so on. 
And so young men in the city, um, th- their behavior became especially, um, they were they were more prone to immorality. So they were t- much more prone to drinking and gambling and fighting and going to brothels. The number of taverns and saloons mushroomed. Mm. The number of brothels, you know, exploded. And so the 19th century became a period where there were a lot of reform movements because men's behavior was, in fact, getting worse. You know, 1830, um, Americans drank, drank more than at any other period in our history. They drank three times as much as they do today. Wow. So the 19th, there was a reason for the temperance movement. Hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, we look back on it because prohibition was a failure, but the, there was a reason yeah. people were concerned about excessive drinking. Uh, public drunkenness, you know, people just fall, collapsing in the street was was a major problem in the cities, and, and um, domestic violence became a more more of a problem because men were drinking, and and they would drink away the poverty was a problem because they drink away the family money. So there was a reason there was a temperance movement. There were uh, what was called the social purity movement, and that was against prostitution and sex trafficking. Um, like I said, the number of brothels had greatly increased. Sex outside of marriage, you know, uh, premarital births uh, went way up. Usually the servant, by the way. It was, hmm. it was usually the female servant. And the abolition movement was at this time, too. And because women had been put on a pedestal and made, you know, the moral guardians of society, it was women who actually drove many of these reform movements. Now, there's a problem with that, though. The problem with that is women were mostly targeting what were traditionally male vices. Mm. As one as one historian puts it, there was there was little doubt as to the sex of the saloon keeper, the seducer, the slave owner, you know, the client at the brothel. Everyone knew these were men. (laughs) And so the reform movements often had sort of a condemnation of males you know, p- built into their rhetoric. And in fact, this is when you really start seeing rhetoric that sounds a lot like today's. In, in other words, men were said to be, you know, cruel, barbaric, uh, warmongers, and, you know, they need the gentling impact of women. This is the language of many of the early feminists, for example. Um, so so men started to revolt against, you know, react against um social norms because social norms had been identified as something imposed by women. So in the late 19th century, you begin to see uh, exaltation of the wild man, you know, the the man who was uh, the, the hunter, the trapper, the frontiers man, the, the soldier, the person who got away from society. So that that's, that's when um, novels became popular that featured the guy who got away from civilization and away from women in particular, <laughs> got away from civilization and found his true manhood being wild out in, out in the wilderness. And um, so that's where a lot of this other side of the, the real man script comes from, mm-hmm. that the real man is the one who's not tied down, who, who retains his wildness. Darwinian evolution played a role too, because Darwin taught people that they were essentially beasts at heart, right? Under the veneer of civilization, they were really animals. And uh, the men who had won in the struggle for existence were the ones who were tough, mean, and even predatory. Hmm. And <laughs> that, 
that was um, Herbert Spencer, by the way. Herbert Spencer was the main popularizer of Darwinism here in America. And that he that's what he said. And then you ask, well, how did women get along with them? <laughs> well, how did women get along with such predatory males? And he said, well, it, they had to learn how to please. <laughs> he said, they had to learn how to please. And then he added, it would also help if they learned how to deceive in order to hide their and hide hide their hurt and and miss their their bad feelings over being mistreated. <laughs> so the, these were these were not fringe figures. These were you know uh, intellectual leaders of the late nineteenth century saying that men were at heart barbarians. Hmm. This is when Tarzan books became popular, <laughs> right? Yep. I mean seriously, you know yep. the. The idea that, you know, if you were raised with a beast, if you were raised in the animals in the jungle, you retain that inner wildness, that inner barbarian. And even when he learns European manners, he says to Jane, I'm still a beast at heart. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, a lot of the toxic, what, what we now call toxic elements also arose as, out of this kind of male revolt against the reform movements of the 19th century as um, men got tired of being painted as a villain, yeah. <laughs> as they are today. Yeah. They got yeah. tired of being painted as a villain, and so they almost overreacted. You know, they started to pre present manhood, real manhood, as, um, especially after Darwin, the word bar barbarian became popular. They are barbarians at heart. So anyway, the, the, this is another part of the story, is that the exaltation of what, we're, what we, most of us see as toxic traits was actually elevated to the real man mm. uh, starting in the end of the 19th century. So again, very deep roots for these things. Yeah, very deep roots. And so it just seems like since it's so deeply rooted, it, it seems almost impossible for men to reverse or, you know, make things right because it's been wrong for so long or that we've been reading the wrong script for so long. How do we, um, you know, make a change moving forward or what changes need to be made on both sides? Yeah. Um, I, I read a book by a historian. It's a, it's a secular historian. It's called be a man. Um, and he made a very interesting observation. He said, a culture's concept of God is what shapes his concept of, of manhood. So in the ancient Greek world, uh, polytheism, polytheism, or the ancient Norse gods, right? Polytheism, um, the gods are constantly fighting, they're battling, um, they're they're drinking and feasting. Uh, and to use his word, they wenched, <laughs> they wenched, they drank, they fought. <laughs> um, and he said, so polytheism tends to focus on the warrior values. You know, the, a real man is a warrior. Uh, the heroic virtues. Well, there's some truth to that, but it's incomplete. So monotheism is the worship of one God, and some forms of monotheism uh, treat God as, as completely transcendent with no real relationship to the world. And that's exemplified especially by Islam. I, I, I found a wonderful quote in an in a Islamic book that says, in Islamic view, Allah would never condescend <laughs> To having a personal relationship with humans, you know, with mere humans, uh, the very idea it would be repulsive. So, in uh, that form of monotheism, of course, manhood then becomes power, you know, power and authority, because that's you know 
Allah demonstrates power. Judaism is monotheistic, but it adds a new dimension because God is a father mm. to his people. And so he's in, and he's in covenant relationship with them. He's in, he is in relationship with his people and he wants to know them. You know, what is it? Uh, let, let us pass on to know the Lord. Let us know the Lord, you know. So knowing God, having a relationship with God is an important part of Jewish monotheism. Then Christianity rises from within Judaism. And the secular historian says, Christianity is the only religion that has the notion of servant leadership. Hmm. You know, where Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. You know, the Son of Man did not come to, you know, came not to be served, but to serve. And he says, Christianity brought a whole new concept of what it means to be masculine. Hmm. Because things like compassion and gentleness and love are masculine virtues. And again, this is a secular guy, so he's kind of trying to puzzle this out, you know. What is this weird Christianity stuff? And he says, you know, Christianity actually exalts a lot of characteristics, character traits that other cultures see as masculine and it ascribes them to men. Mm. And so what that, what that really means, of course, is without getting rid of the other qualities, but it adds to it the gentleness, the compassion, the love. So I thought that was really insightful that you know, if we could recover, mm. the, the biblical concept is so much richer than mm. any other religion and certainly much richer than any secular view of the quote-unquote real man, we have to sometimes just rediscover the riches that Christianity has. I think people who've grown up, so especially people who've grown up in Christian homes, gone to Christian schools, it's, it's so old hat, you know. It becomes sort of trite, and it takes some effort to recover the richness of the Christian view, in this case, the Christian view of manhood. And we, almost hearing it from a secular person helps us to get, get us, um, you know, break through the, the familiarity yeah. helps us to re- recover it again. Yeah, that's huge. And I love just the display of Jesus where, you know, even the people who were expecting Messiah to come, this great warrior, you know, like they were expecting this, you know, manly man who was going to man up and save. And and then this humble servant comes and it's just this side of masculinity that they weren't expecting, but we see it portrayed perfectly in the life of Christ. Yeah, and some people say, well, he, um, well, certainly he showed strength as well. Totally. And that is true. But I think that he may, he did in his teaching often emphasized more uh, what was countercultural. He didn't have to emphasize, hey, men, be aggressive and tough. Mm-hmm. The world already knew that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so a lot of his teaching emphasizes, well, the, the, the gifts of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on, or the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, you know, blessed are those who mourn, you know, he, he tended to emphasize the gentle, gentler virtues, but I think that's because he was um, having to lean against the other yeah. emphasis. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I feel like we're in that season now where we have to continue to remind people of that side of masculinity. Yeah. Uh, although, although we have to do both. Yeah, we do. Know, we do. With, the, with, 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 uh, I, I quote um, I quote a psychologist, a psychotherapist, um, who said, I'm having more and more young boys come in for therapy 
who feel very defeated and defensive because they're growing up in a culture that's hostile to masculinity. Mm. And I thought that was fascinating to hear from the psychotherapist's mouth that, you know, young boys, you see, uh, younger boys <laughs> are in that hostile environment from the from an early age. Uh, you know, boys are falling behind in, in school at all levels, you know, from kindergarten on, you know, boys are falling behind because girls tend to have the skills that are more school oriented, like being more verbal, having a um, fine motor control so that they can color and draw and use the scissors. <laughs> and so already in kindergarten, boys are falling behind, boys are falling behind middle school, grade, um, high school, boys are falling behind in college. Um, you know, a lot of colleges now average 60% female, 40% hmm. male. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, they're even falling behind in graduate school. More women than men are graduating from graduate school and professional schools like law school or veterinary school. Women are ahead all across the board. And and, and on one hand, you know, great. That's great. Women are, you know, women weren't even uh, allowed to be in college till about mid 20th century, <laughs> you know, for many of our major schools. So this is an enormous, enormous advance and we should celebrate that. But there's no... There's no programs now for helping boys. Hmm. There's there's no programs that addressing the fact that boys are falling behind, and men. And once they're men, here's here's what I hear a lot. Why should we care about boys? After all, they when they when they're adults, they're the ones who end up in the positions of power, right? Most most CEOs, presidents, you know, film directors, Fortune 500 companies, uh, board members. Most of them are male. That's true. But while we pay attention to the maybe maybe ten percent, you know, of top dog alpha males, we're not paying attention to the fact that on average men are actually doing worse. You know, they are much more likely than women to have drug and alcohol addiction, to commit suicide, um, to have mental illness, to be homeless. Um, they're even they're even dropping out of the workplace. Do you know? that male employment right now is at Great Depression levels. It's the same level as in the Great Depression. Hmm. We just don't know it because if you stop looking for work, you don't count You don't count anymore in the unemployment statistics. Hmm. But men are, yeah. And men are dropping out of marriage. <laughs> the marriage rate is the lowest it's ever been, ever, in American history. So I think that, um, I, I think we need... I think we really need to focus on what's happening to our men and boys. Mm. The the society is hostile enough that a lot of them are falling behind. Oh, men's life expectancy has gone down in the last three years. Women's has stayed the same, but men's has gone down. Mm. So, you know, they're even dying sooner. Oh, yeah, I, I quote, what did I, I found an article in a Time magazine or somewhere. It says, the, the largest factor in uh, in early death now is being male. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so, so I think we need both sides. You know, we need to continue to stand against the the secular script for men, which is trying to trying to recover sort of the toughness, the the real man. Mm -hmm. uh, but we need to pay attention to the fact that many men are are suffering under feeling like there's not a lot of social support for being men. Mm. Um, I, I found quotes when I was doing my research that said um, uh, top mask, uh, top testosterone is, is a poison. <laughs> Toxta, to they talked about testosterone poisoning. 
Wow. <laughs> you, you know, what, what if they said estrogen poisoning? You know, oh, gosh. Um, the, the, the rhetoric is, is just excessive. And so we do need to also affirm, you know, the, all aspects of what, how God made men. Totally, totally. Wow. Well, there's so much for us to, uh, to absorb. I really appreciate your time and I'm excited about your book coming out next week. Uh, where can we find it? Just for our viewers and our listeners who are listening, where can we find uh, your book? I guess it's available, I'm sure, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it is, it is. Just and, go uh, anywhere yeah, you I, can find it. <laughs> I, I confess, I usually shop online, so it's Amazon or yeah. ChristianBook.com. Yeah, perfect. Uh, but I hope your local Christian store, if you have a favorite one, that they will hold, they will carry it as well. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your wisdom, your insight. I know our people will be so blessed and all the best in the new book and all you do. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks for having me today. It was great talking with you. You too. Thank you. Okay. Wow. That was a fantastic interview. So much stuff to take away. Uh, So much history. As she said, it's not like this just happened overnight. This was uh, many years in the making, and uh, that was an eye-opener to me. Uh, I know we probably have lots of takeaways. I'll just share one of mine, and then you guys can share one of yours. Um, but I think a big one for me was just uh, the reminder when we were just dialoguing about uh, King David and how you know he's this musician, and I'm a musician, so I know that means he's a massive softy <laughs> and extremely emotional. Um, but uh, you know he's that he has that side to him, but he's also you know killing bears and lions with his bare hands which I think is pretty cool. Wow. But he's not always killing lions and bears every second. And he's not always writing a sappy song. <laughs> it's his default state 24. What can I kill? <laughs> yeah. So it's just like this balance. Even talking yep. about Jesus, you know, our Lord and Savior. Um, everyone was expecting this warrior, this, you know, this superhero. Mm. And of course he is all powerful. He's strong. But mm-hmm. he showed this gentle, mm-hmm. humble side to yep. it. It's just this. Yep. We need to reclaim both and be aware of both. Mm-hmm. And have a balance, and I think we've kind of leaned. Yeah. We keep leaning yeah. harshly, which is uh, yeah. Well, it's the whole aspect of like. I mean, many psychologists have said that, and if you're watching this and uh, you listen to a very famous psychologist who I won't mention by name, uh, he says like, oh, cap- being capable of violence, uh, but but being, you know, I guess, man enough to tone it down and be disciplined enough to not use it, but being capable of it is mm. is is seen throughout the Bible in men like. Jesus, who is God and capable, very capable, yeah. powerful, yeah. <laughs> very powerful, and yeah. like someone like David, obviously, and knowing when to restrain it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. Yeah. That was really good, uh, Chris. What was your takeaway? Um, I mean, I'm sure there are many. Yeah, but I mean, there's, there's yeah, there's like a fire hose of <laughs> <laughs> stats and figures. I thought it was interesting how she dates it. This whole decline in of the view of masculinity she dates it back to the 19th century yeah mm-hmm. and like pre-industrial revolution yeah i mean a lot of that went right over my head but <laughs> it's not something i would have thought yeah mm-hmm. would be able to be dated that far back yeah. yeah even just the reality of like men were at the home and they were like yeah. loving and caring and also now they have to go to work and now there's a separation yeah there seemed to be a mm-hmm. very distinct yeah moment yeah with mm-hmm. the whole going mm. off to work and not yep. being in the home. Which is what I always so. thought that's what the man's like role is to do, like to go and provide mm. and, yeah. you know, and and part of us are wired to do that, but I guess just being mm. aware of, you know, I guess the yep. implications of that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, even if I'm, this is a random thought, but I'm, I'm thinking of like like a peasant farmer in ye old days, uh, before the industrial revolution. It's like he was with his family. Yeah, that's yeah. He had what the I kids was working too. on the farm with him. Yeah. yeah. And the wife would have, have a role in that too. Yeah, so he's it like working like, with the people yeah. he loves and he's yeah, just yeah. around them all the time. Yeah, yeah, it just makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and then yeah, now he goes right. to work and it's like yeah. competition and like, yep. you know, the secular, you know, secular. Yeah, again, you're, you're not, you're working less towards a common good, yeah. common goal yeah. and working more towards your own individualistic yeah. means. Yeah. But how do yeah. you reverse that? Quit your job. Become Start a farm. <laughs> Start a farm. <laughs> Actually, I have a couple of friends that actually want to do that. I want so to do that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I want to have a farm. My wife and I really want to have a farm. And then, like, teach yeah. our kids to just, you know, do hey, farm stuff together. Grow vegetables. That'd do farm stuff. Be, I, don't, be, I don't know what farm stuff plant is. Plant something do. and grow it. I don't know. <laughs> Gather some eggs. Yeah. I just wouldn't want to, like, slaughter a chicken. I just told my wife, if we do have chickens and we do all that stuff, it's like, I don't want to be eating dinner and be like, hey, is this Jim? <laughs> <laughs> you just don't name them. This is chicken one. <laughs> yeah, this is chicken yeah. two. Uh, Chickalette is pretty good, huh? For all my George, Papa I'm so yes. sorry. <laughs> he was such a good guy. He was a good chicken. Uh, but uh, you know that was yeah. Seeing how far back it goes, yeah, yeah. I think was yeah. very eye opening. Yeah, uh, that was huge. What about you, bro? Yeah, for me, the uh, uh, something that stood out to me was the just the marriage statistics how, about how you have like you know serious yes. Christians. Like the statistics were really good. Yeah, and then yeah. you have cat. I guess, for lack of a better term, what was the word she used? I was going to say she casual said Christian. Said nominal, nominal, nominal yeah. Christian, which yeah. like she said that, and I was like, that makes perfect sense because yeah. people who have that in them, like they're kind of like they'll do the bare minimum to look good. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like yeah. I don't know if that's actually what happens, but I, that's that's the 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 thought that I instantly had. Yeah, it's like of course those would be the guys to do it. Yeah, but, but I didn't I, realize that they would be worse. I know. I kind of that expect was, that. Really? Yeah, I kind of expect that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, because it, they're kind of like hiding it. Like they're yeah. um, oh, how, like it right. makes them feel good about right. themselves. Oh, if I go to church once in a while, yeah. and like the non, it's like that would be the group to have that stat, in my opinion. Yeah. Wow, it's sort of like Wolf that sheep's saying, yeah. like yeah, yeah. you know, you know, just enough to like yeah. do damage or whatever. Yeah, but you don't know enough to actually follow it through. Yeah. Mm. So it's like, yeah, I can. I know enough of the Bible to weaponize certain Bible passages uh, to justify because yeah, that yeah. that's that's often how I would hear it yeah. with like domestic abuse or whatever. Mm. If the man's a Christian, he's quoting scripture and then yeah. backhanding right. his children or something right. like that, right? Right. Yeah. He's obviously um, not a Christian. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you, yeah, you know just enough to try and justify, mm-hmm. but then you're not in church ever. Yeah. But did you <laughs> guys think that that group of people would have worse statistics than like secular people who don't even believe at all? I mean, at least the secular people are being honest with themselves. Yeah, I guess that's, that's true. Like yeah, they're not hi- trying to hide anything. I think, yep. yeah, it's it's really, it's, it's yeah. that hiddenness. Yep. That, like, uh, I, I don't think I would have known to express it or like put a finger on those th- types of people because that's a very like, it's it's a it's a big statement, but like yeah. seeing the stats, it's like oh yeah, that makes that makes that sense. makes sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really shocking, and it actually was really encouraging to see the people who are faithful to the word and in their church, mm. and you know, faithful to their relationship with Jesus, have fantastic stats. They're just yeah. doing significantly better. Yeah, that's like that's a big deal. Yeah, actually, I've so, never yeah. heard that. I've never before. heard that. I've like, always that heard, was, oh, divorce rate it, is the same. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just knew it to be true, like anecdotally, and you hear read, read a stat like that, it's yeah. like oh yeah. Yeah, but like all I hear from churches, oh, the divorce rate is the same yeah. in and out of the church. But I don't, I never, I never saw that. I know, and I it's, never, it's I never. I do saw know that. people that are divorced, but like not at that rate. It's yeah, uh, it's, yeah, yeah. Or the people. Uh, this is going to sound very harsh, but the people that did get divorced, 
they was like, yeah, they were nominal, nominal Christians. They didn't take their faith seriously. I kind of right. saw it. You right. Know what yep. I mean? right. That's right. tough yep. to say. Um, That's but, really hard to say, really hard to hear, but it's yeah. just the yeah. reality, you know, mm-hmm. and I think it goes back to like even what we were talked about earlier this year, just the whole kind of foundation for me to even be a part of in doubt is like this narrow and wide path. Mm. And I feel like the yeah. wide nominal, hey, I'm a Christian by name. Keeps you up at night. But I'm just, uh, not anymore, actually. Oh, that's good. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what, what changed? Wait, what's the sleeping pills. No, I'm oh, just kidding. Nice. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Nice. But uh, no, but I, I just feel like, you know, the nominal, we're Christian by name. But, uh, you know. Yeah. So that, that's, it is hard to hear, though. But uh, man, there's so mm-hmm. much incredible things there. And uh, we do hope that you uh, enjoyed that. That was a very insightful for you. Um, we were very specific and strategic to release this, you know, to do this episode. Uh, with Nancy for uh, the Monday after Father's Day because mm-hmm. a lot of men are getting bashed these days and it's actually they're starting to bash themselves mm-hmm. and we want to kind of remove that lie that men are worthless or useless or they're just a bunch of deadbeat idiots. Uh, honestly, mm-hmm. all this stuff is like becoming more and more popular. But uh, mm-hmm. if you're a man, if you're a boy, whatever, if you're watching, you have value, you have purpose, you have a, a calling on your life, you're gifted, mm-hmm. uh, you're wired a certain way strategically by God. Yeah. And so we just pray for you, uh, pray for the dads, pray for all the men, and uh, we're grateful for you. Mm-hmm. You're important, and you're valued, and uh, that makes me feel a little better. <laughs> you just you lost yourself. Yeah. I'm just actually speaking to myself. Like, come on, that. Andrew, you got this. You got this. <laughs> I uh, mean, half that conversation, the, the interview, I was thinking like, man, I'm not going to give my kids phones till they're like 18 at least. Like they're going outside, they're playing in the yard, they're building tree forts, and <laughs> you know what honestly, I mean? like, that is so important. Yeah. And I yeah. see even it's my kids so, at yeah. such a young age. Once that screen goes on, they're like glued to it, man. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like, really addictive. Yeah, at a very it? early age. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. not giving my kids yeah. Yeah. any of that. Well, I mean, we'll see what my wife says, but you know, <laughs> gotta compromise. No, be a man, buddy. Be a man. Oh, Come sorry, on. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> on that note, when in doubt, figure it out how. Be toxic. Kings. Oh my oh. goodness. Oh, uh, that was Brendan. That wasn't even Donnie. That oh, was just uh, Brendan was just a <laughs> terrible. Yeah, you know what? We talked about the importance of she said, statistically, those who are faithful yep. to the Lord, faithful to the word. In con- church. In church, yep. connected to community. Those are good stats, whether yeah. you're married or single. And so do those things. Get Be a people part of the- in your life to hold you accountable. Yes, yeah. for sure. And uh we Other hope godly you godly men. Godly men. Yes, absolutely. But have a great week. And again, happy Father's Day to the dads you're watching, and uh, we'll see you next Monday.